Have you ever heard of the vegetable lamb? The vegetable lamb is extraordinary in that it belongs to a class nearly all its own. The ultra-rare half-plant, half-animal. To the naked eye, it looks like a small shrub you might find in gardens all over the world, marked by a single thick stem that shoots straight up like a sunflower. At the top of that stem are small encased bulbs. Open one up, and you will find a small lamb, alive, fuzzy, and waiting to be plucked and raised for its wool. Okay, yes, it's nonsense. But while the vegetable lamb most definitely doesn't exist, it was accepted and spread as truth for literally hundreds of years. Europeans in the Middle Ages knew that cotton was this thing that arrived from India, but they, they weren't exactly sure how it grew. Enter a fantastical story about lambs growing from the ground like cauliflower. The folklore first took hold because it satisfied a gap in understanding. As travel writers brought stories from around the world, the tale of the vegetable lamb seemed to propagate all on its own. Even as scientific thinking exploded during the Renaissance and academics debunked the possibility of such a creature, the stories of the vegetable lamb still pressed on, until ultimately falling apart around the 1600s after attempts to prove the creature existed were revealed to be plants cut and bundled together in the shape of a lamb. Sort of the three children stacked on each other's shoulders under a trench coat approach to deception. So... What can the vegetable lamb teach us today? False stories spread like a virus, particularly when they help us make sense of something we don't understand. Back in the 1400s, it was tall tales about sheep grown from the ground. Today, it's conspiracy theories and misinformation, now being amplified by modern technologies like AI bots, social media algorithms, and deep fake facial recognition. Today's question. Has technology broken the truth? We'll hear from Josh Levin from Cascade Data Labs and take a deep dive with Sam Woolley, the author of The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. Now, just like I say to my wife when I need to both reintroduce myself and show her I fixed the clogged bathtub, I'm Scott Herms. This is Working Better. Okay, so in part one of Data versus Goliath. We talked about the role of data in our lives at a human level, how we interact with new information, how confirmation bias and cultural identity can steer us away from data that we don't agree with in our work, in our relationships, and in our communities. So if part one looked at how we're inherently wired to put up a fight against the truth, part two will call into question, do we still even know what the truth is? Playing the role of Goliath this time around, Technology. This is clearly a politically charged topic at the moment. There are many lenses we can use to understand the post-truth era, the proliferation of fake news, and the day-to-day status of truth and democracy. Our intention is to help unpack the role of technology in both the problem as well as potential solutions, depending on who you talk to. We're going to explain how social media algorithms and AI bots might not work the way you think they do, how emerging technologies pose an entirely new challenge, and the different schools of thought about how we should solve the problem. Mr. Harris, you are recognized now for, for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Chairwoman Jakowski and, and members. Really appreciate you inviting me here. 
I'm going to go off script. I, I come here because I'm incredibly concerned. That's Tristan Harris speaking at a congressional hearing in January 2020. You might recognize Tristan's voice if you've seen the hit Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. The film explores the dangerous impact of social media, as told by former employees of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Google. The argument goes like this. Social media companies are having a much more profound effect on society than their founders ever could have imagined, particularly when it comes to the rapid spread of hate speech, propaganda, and widely debunked conspiracy theories. While the fake news phenomenon has brought plenty of absurd stories worth laughing at, Tristan argues the underlying dangers are more severe than we might think. Flat Earth conspiracy theories were recommended hundreds of millions of times. This might sound just funny and, oh, look at those people, but actually this is very serious. I have a researcher friend who studied this. If the Flat Earth theory is true, it means not just that all of government is lying to you, but all of science is lying to you. So think about that for a second. That's like a meltdown of all of our rational epistemic understanding of the world. So how does this happen? And how do companies like Facebook fit into it all? For starters, there are 2.7 billion people around the world on Facebook. Over a third of the human population. Because Facebook's business model is centered around ad sales, the thing really being sold isn't the platform itself, but the attention of those 2.7 billion people. Advertisers will always pay a premium to be where the eyeballs are. That's nothing new. What is different is the level of sophistication to which these companies can do so. Because everything comes down to holding your attention, highly nuanced algorithms are designed to feed you the perfect thing to keep you clicking and scrolling. We're always connected and these algorithms have hacked our brains to constantly want to engage with them. That's Josh Levin. Josh is a data scientist and co-founder of Cascade Data Labs in Portland, Oregon, who recently joined the Kinnancarta family. It's such a subtle and unconscious addiction. I'll find myself checking my phone in any free moment, such as even walking to the bathroom, and it's just completely compulsive and mindless. And it's at a time where there's all this research on the health benefits of mindfulness, and we're just completely pushing our brains in the opposite direction. Every photo, status update, friend suggestion, group recommendation, news article, it's all driven by an evolving model of what you want to see next. Machine learning means the model learns and improves itself with every click. What do people tend to click on the most and respond most favorably to? As we learn from part one, there's nothing we gobble up faster than reinforcement that we're the good guys. Collectively, over time, we've created a reinforcing feedback loop between our media consumption and our political consumption. As our politics became more polarized, we became more easily sortable, and our media has followed suit. Content creators have exploited the interplay between these algorithms and our media consumption, and things have grown even more extreme and intertwined to the point where it's really impossible to separate the two, and every news article can be projected to have some sort of political bias. On either end of the political spectrum, if you've ever felt like the other side appears to be living in their own reality, well, in a sense, they are. When our feeds learn to present us one side of the equation, polarization becomes inevitable. A study from Upturn revealed it actually cost more for a politician to advertise across the aisle. It's quite literally more expensive to try and change someone's mind than it is to reinforce their beliefs. And when an algorithm is learning that feeding you conspiracy theories will keep you there, guess what's going to keep showing up on the menu? 
For breakfast, may I recommend a secret cabal of lizard people controlling the world. For lunch, we are featuring a platter of JFK Jr. never died and is secretly share. And for dinner, (laughs) our house specialty. An ad for reptile deterrent spray because it's important to protect your family. Propaganda and deliberate disinformation works the same way. Content is shared and amplified by fake AI bots designed to stoke outrage and destabilize functioning society. So what do we do? Well, first, we cleanse the palate. It's time for Cooler Terms with Pooler and Herms. All right. As always, I'm joined by our very own Katie Pooler. Hey, Katie, how's it going? Hello. This week's episode is all about data and very specifically about how we're not really geared well to recognize sometimes when we're being misled. And and so we're looking at different ways to kind of fight that. And uh, while researching this, Max, our producer, he found this great old like newsreel from the 1940s called Don't Be a Sucker. <laughs> and it's all about, you know, ways to recognize when people are trying to mislead you and, and try to you know feed you uh, uh, misinformation. There's a good old fashioned word for people like this. We call them suckers. And there are other people, people who stay up nights figuring out how to take away what they've got. So what I was thinking is maybe you and I can work together to come up with some some cooler terms like don't be a sucker, uh, you know, or like they had back in World War II, great things like, you know, loose lips sink ships or when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler to encourage you to, to share rides and, you know, use less gas. Um, so I was thinking, you know, what can you and I come up with that could help people do the right thing when they're online, you know, evaluate material as it comes up and maybe, you know, not repost stuff they're not really sure about. Totally. Yeah. No, I like this. Any good campaign is going to need a flashy title. It's going to need to it's gotta have substance. It's got to be able to stick in your mind. So I, I'm all in for that. I'm all in for this. Let's go. I was just thinking around some of it, you know, taking that kind of as the model. Uh, you know, I was thinking of something maybe like loose facts might sink democracies. Political memes make babies scream. <laughs> Take one for the team. Don't share that meme. <laughs> when you check facts faster, you stop disasters. Link sharing is not caring. Only you can prevent misinformation spread. Check your encyclopedia before using social media. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Your like makes QAnon storm our capital. Don't be dumb with your thumbs. Keep democracy safe. Stay off social media. Don't be a sucker, mother (laughs) Oh, there goes our rating. All right, well, that was Cooler Terms for this week. Thanks for tuning in, people. Thanks, Katie. You're welcome. Okay, good. I'm feeling hopeful again. To summarize so far, social media companies want our attention. Algorithms hold our attention by predicting what we'll click on based on what we've clicked on in the past and what people who are like us have clicked on in the past. We all end up in our own echo chambers. As polarization gets worse and worse, we become susceptible to propaganda and influence campaigns. So what do solutions look like? Some say technology and media forums have always raised concerns about collateral damage. In 1897, a London writer lamented the invention of the telephone, saying, I say, rather, hmm, 
we shall soon be nothing but transparent heaps of jelly to each other. My doctor says so far I'm only an opaque heap of jelly, so joke's on him. Free market advocates say regulation stifles competition and that people should consider using different social media or messaging services like Signal, Telegram, or Mastodon. Others, many on both sides of the aisle, argue that the government should stay out of it, that censorship of any kind, like Twitter banning Trump or Parler being moved from Amazon Web Services, is a slippery slope, and it's up to individuals to create change. Here's a clip from a video from the Foundation for Economic Education. We all should have a ton of serious concerns about the amount of control a handful of coders and executives at Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube have over the ideas we're all allowed to talk about. But the way we stop them from dictating the limits of people's speech isn't to let the government control what we're allowed to say or decide how the platforms are allowed to operate instead. Reform advocates like Tristan Harris say, of course, individuals have power. But when we focus the problem on specific content, or we frame it as a few executives in Silicon Valley who control everything, we're missing the bigger problem. We've often framed these issues as we've got a few bad apples. We've got these bad deep fakes, we've got to get them off the platform. We've got this bad content, we've got these bad bots, dark patterns. What I want to argue is we have dark infrastructure. This is now the infrastructure by which 2.7 billion people, bigger than the size of Christianity, make sense of the world. It's the, it's the information environment. And if someone went along, private companies, and built nuclear power plants all across the United States, and they started melting down, and, and they said, well, it's your responsibility to have hazmat suits and build, you know, have a radiation kit, that's essentially what we're experiencing now. The responsibility is being put on, on consumers when in fact, if it's the infrastructure, it should be put on the people building that infrastructure. Protection of children and teenagers has become a primary focus of those calling for regulation. Tristan points out that policies designed to safeguard the content kids are exposed to is not a new idea at all. We used to have Saturday morning cartoons. We protected children from certain kinds of advertising, time, place, manner restrictions. When YouTube gobbles up that part of the attention economy, we lose all those protections. So why not bring back the protections of Saturday morning? There's a lot of nuance to this debate and a lot more to unpack in terms of how we solve the issue of technology and misinformation. To help us do exactly that, we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Sam Woolley. Sam is a writer, researcher, and professor with a focus on emerging media technologies and propaganda. His work looks at how automation, algorithms, and AI are leveraged for both freedom and control. His recent book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth, explores the future of digital disinformation across virtual reality, video, and other media tools, including a pragmatic roadmap for how society can respond. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you for having me. Great. So if you'd just like to start us off, our, our listeners, a little bit with a little bit about your background and then what it is that you currently do and how did you get interested in it? Primarily a, a writer and researcher. I work at the University of Texas, um, <clears throat> where I oversee something called the Propaganda Research Lab uh, within the Center for Media Engagement. My team is mostly focused on doing analysis of emerging media and trends like disinformation and manipulation of public opinion. So, you know, we study all these sorts of emerging things on platforms like from Parler to Facebook to, to Twitter and the ways in which these platforms are leveraged for various forms of, of manipulation or hate or harassment. Simultaneous to that, you know, we also focus on solutions. So we look at the ways in which we can solve these problems. 
I got into this work <laughs> kind of randomly, you know, I had been very interested in politics, I'd been interested in digital tools. And while I was doing my master's degree around 2010, I was working on the Tea Party and the ways in which the Tea Party was using uh, online forums and online spaces to discuss and organize. And from there, I went to work for the Obama campaign um, in 2012 as a, as a fellow and started to realize the power of big data during that campaign and the power of online tools as well. And so when I went to do my PhD at University of Washington, it felt like a really logical connection to start looking into the ways in which social media tools are being used both for democratic purposes, but also for purposes of manipulation. That's really interesting. The Tea Party now seems so long ago and so quaint compared to what's going on now. And I think, isn't that sort of also sort of around the time uh, astroturfing came up as a term, right? As opposed to, as a uh, counterpoint to grassroots, I, I suppose, right? So yeah, um, back then there was a lot of allegations against the Tea Party that they were astroturf, so fake grassroots, rather than being actually of the people because they were supported by very powerful interests like the mm. Koch brothers and others. And that's really something we've seen extended throughout the last 10 or 15 years to a lot of these other groups, whether it's QAnon now or, or other uh, similar conspiratorial or disinformation-oriented groups around the world. Oftentimes, you will see some kind of a, a circular communication cycle between both the top-down folks, so the people in the positions of power, whether it's governments, uh, wealthy folks, uh, corporations, and then the bottom-up folks, so regular people. Usually it's the top-down folks try to uh, seed and fertilize different kinds of ideas, mm -hmm. manipulative ideas often, to, the, to other folks and get those folks to spread it in order to give it the illusion of popularity and grassroots uh, beginnings. Then it becomes more potent. And it's called seeding and fertilizing because, you know, they plant these ideas amongst the populace and we're able to draw connections between them doing this. But then throughout the time, they also work to fertilize the ideas. So, you know, as they if they start to languish, they push them forward a little bit or they will pepper conversations on Facebook groups pages or Reddit forums with particular leading statements, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And I, and I like that idea. I hadn't really thought of that before about the idea of the cycle and it almost brought to mind, you know, like the water cycle or the photosynthetic cycle, right? That it's not just like a one-way push, but that this is a loop that a group of people are trying to enhance, you know, uh, a sort of natural flow of information and, and sort of really try to jump on that and, and, and push it to make it go further. Yeah, I, I oftentimes use the the analogy of the, the worm Ouroboros, you know, the snake eating its own tail. Um, yeah. It's similar in a lot of ways because social media, at the same time that they allowed for the democratization of information and for people to communicate and organize about revolution and uh, about democracy, also were normalized by people in positions of power for uses of manipulation and to perpetuate their control, right? So you had people using these tools for democracy. You also had people using these tools in ways that looked authoritarian. And the connections between the two groups are really hard to parse sometimes. Like it's not the same tools that allowed people to quote unquote become journalists or to break news like Twitter also have allowed nearly anyone to be a propagandist. So it's not just as simple as to say that it's only well-resourced individuals or groups that are behind a lot of this propaganda or disinformation. It's also true that many individuals and fringe groups also spread their own versions of propaganda using these tools too. 
One of the reasons we're reaching out to you today is uh, we saw your book, The Reality Game, how the next wave of technology will break the truth. But do you feel like, is the truth already broken in some ways? And if not, you know, what will it mean to eventually break it? In some ways, the truth has always been a broken concept, right? Like Hannah Arendt wrote back in the 60s about the connections between truth and politics and basically made the assertion very correctly that politicians have always had a very flexible relationship with the truth. And in fact, that lying is oftentimes seen as a necessary part of politicians, not just by demagogues or authoritarians, but also by statesmen and regular politicians in Congress in the United States. And so that's not to say, though, that facts are broken, because I think truth and facts are are kind of two different concepts that, that require a little bit of parsing. Today, in today's day and age, you have people like Kellyanne Conway sitting before the news media saying things like, we're presenting our own alternative facts in reference to to, to Spicer's comments as press secretary. But uh, alternative facts are not facts, right? Like fact actually refers to science and refers to empirical knowledge, being able to verify, being part of the scientific process. And so I would say that while the truth is under attack and the truth is sort of always and already broken in some ways, what we have to work to do is we have to work back to get on track where we have a shared reality, And a shared reality, and that's why this book's called The Reality Game. It's because, you know, there's constantly this game going on with trying to, like, argue about what is correct and what's not. And human civilization goes through cycles of, to some some extent or more extent or less, sharing some kind of reality. So, you you know, if you think about the the ancient Greeks and, and the Romans and what they knew... And then we went into a period that was called literally the Dark Ages. And then we went back into the Renaissance where a lot of these things were rediscovered. And so in some ways, perhaps we're going through our own small version of of a Dark Age where there's a pushback against institutions, against institutions like science and healthcare uh, and education and government. But I do think we're, in some ways, we're coming out on the other side of this because 10 years ago, a decade ago, when I first started studying this stuff, no one really wanted to talk about the fact that social media and new media technologies were being used for manipulation and Mm. that this was causing a real challenge to the truth. When I put my book out last year, The Reality Game, I was really heartened because there was a lot of pickup and a lot of discussion around these ideas, and it's become much more popularized. And so in some ways, I think that's really beneficial the one thing I would say to people is I've got to caution folks to not swing the pendulum too far towards obsession with facts and truth, because we kind of need both facts and fantasy, because the world doesn't just function on either hard facts or uh, supposition. It functions on some, some combination of both. We need to have both in order to have imagination, but we also need to do a lot more work in today's day and age to combat falsehoods and disinformation or the purposeful spread of false content. Yeah, I think that's a great point that, you know, truth or um, what is our shared reality has always been a flexible concept. Over the past couple of years, I've been reading a lot of presidential biographies, and it was just sort of interesting, very interesting to, to read about the level of partisan news back in the colonial times, back in the start of the of the Union, where, you know, people are accusing Adams of being a secret monarchist, right? So, and, you know, the newspapers were expected to be partisan there, right? And we just sort of recently came out of a a period, you know, earlier where people were expected not to be partisan. So I think looking at it in terms of cycles or swings is very helpful in setting context. Yeah, I think that that's a very, very good point. So this concept of objectivity in journalism has, has, is relatively new in American history of the news. 
It didn't come about until around the 1920s when there was a shift towards this idea that journalists should be more like stenographers, that they should report, uh, say, President Trump said XYZ, President Biden said XYZ, but not give any context. I think that we've had this realization that if you just allow a journalist to act as a stenographer, that they oftentimes repeat lies, Mm. uh, you know, depending on the context. You know, if you're talking to uh, a suspect in a criminal case, then that person has a lot of possibilities for, for telling you lies. But we've also realized that people holding the highest levels of office may repeat lies in order to push their own agenda forward. And that's been the case throughout history. But with social media, you have this, this ability for folks like that to amplify those lies and disinformation. And it's not just in the United States. It's in India, Brazil, the Philippines, Turkey, where you have emerging populist nationalists that are attempting to use this social media as a direct conduit to the people and a combination of lies, lies half-truths, and truths to coax people in a direction that allows them to have more control. So, you know, when we ask journalists just to be purely objective, or when we ask journalists to check their identity at the door, we're actually doing something that's impossible. But we're also doing something that we don't, I don't think as a, as a scholar of disinformation propaganda that we want journalists to do. Because journalists have an inside look into what I would actually say are the facts. They actually get a lot more context. They're actually talking to people who witness events on the ground. So that is actual empirical good data. And uh, I would like to see that context provided. What is computational propaganda? <laughs> computational propaganda is a term that Phil Howard, who is the director of the Oxford Internet Institute, and myself, back when we were both at the University of Washington, kind of co-coined together. We were thinking about the ways in which social media was being used during the Arab Spring and during the Occupy Wall Street protests, particularly looking at automated fake profiles. So these profiles that were on Twitter that had software behind them to automate their tasks and spread particular political perspectives. That's a lot of P's there. Um, but basically these, these bots, as we called them, political bots, were being used to manipulate public opinion by amplifying particular content with the goal really of, of both getting people to reshare their content because it gave it that content the illusion of popularity or of getting algorithms to pick it up because they thought just by the sheer number of times these bots were sharing the content, that it was popular and so they should recurate it to people. And so we landed on this term computational propaganda because really what we saw was the ways in which propaganda, which is something that's been around for a very long time, was being enhanced by things like automation and anonymity. And those were really the two new things about this new version of propaganda in digital spaces that we zeroed in on. So it was bots, but it was also the algorithmic processes that I was just talking about. So, you know, you had social media companies out there saying things like, we're not the arbiters of the truth. We just present information and trying to dress themselves up as like a modern day AT&T or some such. But what we were arguing was, no, actually, like you've built your systems in such a way that these automated tools or sock puppets run by regular people, if they're run at uh, the right levels or in the right places, focusing on manipulating the right people, people in positions of power, can manipulate your algorithms and your algorithms will recurate content to people. And so you are in charge of that curation. You actually are arbitrating the truth yeah. for people on a large scale. That is interesting. Like who is ethically responsible for the algorithm? 
we did an episode earlier around AI where we kind of dug into a little bit of if you build the algorithm that drive the car, are you responsible for the actions it takes? Or you build the AI that does the facial recognition. What ethical responsibility do you have for that? Yeah. And I would say that a lot of companies have attempted to divest themselves of responsibility for algorithms or for artificial intelligence or machine learning processes. My argument as someone that looks into this stuff quite often is is that while it's true that oftentimes algorithms and, and AI are built by teams of people and the inputs and outputs, the outputs can sometimes be unexpected, particularly with machine learning algorithms, there's got to be some modicum of responsibility, whether it's for the corporations that are building them or for the people that are building them. I don't think it's fair to, to allow firms to say that their algorithms are somehow objective or mathematical because that's just not true. We know that people build these and they encode them with their own values. And so that's what we've got to learn moving forward. And, we've, and companies have got, to, have got to take that into consideration when they build these tools. Now, how do you, you talked a little bit about bots and maybe just, just dig a little bit deeper into that topic. And I, I think like at a high level, maybe when you said they're sock puppets, which would be, um, I go, I'm a person, I go in, I create a fake account that has a profile that I think will be attractive to the target audience. And and I'm manually sort of churning out whatever propaganda I want or whatever viewpoint I'm trying to push, whether, you know, for good or for evil, depending on your view. And then I think that it's the idea of the bot, like how, you know, is that a fair uh, differentiation? And then how automated actually are the bots or is it still fairly, you know, a manual process to run those, the, the bots? Mm -hmm. So a bot is just a simple term for kind of any automated software. It's a catch-all phrase for any automated software online. And so bots get used to do all kinds of things online. They're not necessarily good or bad, although they've been given kind of like a negative valence in recent, recent times. So for instance, like Google search runs on bots that, that get used to search for all the different URLs and put them all together and then do stack ranking. It's more complicated than that, but suffice to say the Google search bot is really important to Google. Now, what we're talking about more social media bots or social bots, and more specifically what, what my colleagues and I have called political bots, these are forward-facing bots that have presence on social media. So it's, it's an automated piece of software that gets built to automate the social media profile. So it can automate the posts, it can automate likes, or in the case of Twitter, retweets. It can automate comments on, say, like a news site uh, below the line. So bots are fairly automated things. They usually get built through the application programming interface on the given site, the API. So Twitter historically has had quite an open one, as has Reddit and, and several other sites. So basically software developers could go in and use that API to build their own software programs that automated profiles. And because there's an uh, anonymity on sites like Twitter or Reddit, those bots could leverage that anonymity to spread particular political ideas. And in that case, they would be political bots because they're engaging in political discourse, political calm. Then there's also sock puppets, which you mentioned, which sock puppets are usually run by people. They're accounts that have no clear identity uh, on a site like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever, that are manually run. Increasingly, we're seeing a merger of these two things. There was more separation. Most of the political bots that were out there on Twitter back in 2013 or even 2016 during the US election then were very heavy handed. They were used just to massively boost likes of particular political candidates or to, to spam comment sections with repetitive comments over and over and over again. And that was all they needed to do because propagandists and people attempting to spread disinformation are very pragmatic. They use the cheapest tools they need 
uh, and the simplest tools that they need oftentimes to get the job done. And those bots did get the job done because they were able to do what I call manufacturer consensus, which builds on the work of Herman and Chomsky. But rather than manufacturing consent, what bots do is they, they give content the illusion of, of popularity, right? They give the illusion of consensus around these ideas. And oftentimes what ends up happening is powerful people end up picking up their content. In the reality game, my new book, what I talk about is the ways in which bots and sock puppets and these strategies for for spreading astroturf content in digital spaces, the ways in which they're becoming more sophisticated. So we mentioned artificial intelligence and machine learning. Machine learning, wherein you build a software program that learns from its surroundings, has very specific implications for bots and for political bot use. If you can build bots that actually learn from political conversations with people, then they can become much more effective at actually manipulating people. So they're not so heavy-handed anymore where they're being used to, to bolster likes and stuff, but they're actually becoming more sophisticated. There was a misperception in 2016 that bots were all out there sort of changing people's minds about who to vote for or like what kind of policy agenda to take up. In fact, the bots were way more simple than that. Now, though, they're becoming actually more sophisticated and that machine learning technology is becoming a bit cheaper. And so particularly amongst really well-resourced political groups, so governments or intelligence agencies and stuff, it is possible to build automated profiles that can actually have realistic conversations with people and also learn from their surroundings in a way that allows them to scale up their efforts without the need for people behind the accounts to have conversations with folks that are more nuanced in order to manipulate them. In your book, you argue that fighting fake news AI bots with more AI is a mistake. Why do you think that? Ever since I've been doing this work, I, you know, every time I go to a conference, there's always someone at the conference that says, well, if Russia wants to use bots or AI, then we should use AI in the US or the UK or wherever I am. <laughs> um, and so there's this very adversarial idea that like, you know, we, we should fight fire with fire. In fact, the RAND Institute, which does a lot of work with the US military and US government, has this report called I think it's called the fire hose of falsehood. And there's this great line in that report that says, we can no longer fight the fire hose of falsehood with a squirt gun of truth. Sort of implying that we need to respond in kind to the kinds of mis- and disinformation campaigns, uh, leveraging bots that we see adversaries using. I disagree with this. I think that responding to bots with more bots or responding to AI with more AI systems oftentimes can lead to unexpected and problematic consequences. The number one thing that happens when you fight bots with bots is a tremendous amount of noise. Bots already mess up our information ecosystem. They already have created a tremendous amount of noise on Twitter and they've created a tremendous amount of, of distrust in social media because people just don't know what to believe. They don't know whether or not random profiles that they're interacting with might be aimed at manipulation. And that distrust is something that we don't want to throw fuel on, right? Like to, to extend that fire metaphor, right? And so what I say is like, you know, let's not use heavy-handed bot responses to bots. Let's think about ways to build policy that, that helps to limit the effectiveness of political bots. So like, you know, say, for instance, stopping them from posting every minute, which Facebook and Twitter have picked up in the last several years and other companies have as well. And we've seen this be quite successful. On the other hand, however, we also need to do a redesigning of some of this social media technology in a way that also doesn't allow cyborg accounts, so combinations of bots and people, 
to function quite so well. And also sock puppet accounts, which we mentioned, still are able to fly under the radar. And so suffice to say, we don't want to get into an arms race, an AI arms race or a bots arms race, because when we get into that situation, we end up where we are quite similarly, but perhaps with different consequences with, with nuclear war. We end up just basically always being terrified that the nuclear option is going to be unleashed or we're always in a space where everyone's scared and distrustful. So definitely you're, you're saying no, more AI bots is not a, a good use of, of technology. Is there policies, obviously we can get sort of these platform providers to agree to this. Is there, is there any sort of technology that might help in this fight? I think like to add nuance to the point on on bots and AI, there are beneficial ways we can use both of these things and both of these things in concert to create smart bots that say, for instance, like help to verify information or help to educate or help to connect particular communities that need to be connected, say that like, you know, educational communities that otherwise wouldn't be speaking. So maybe we can use AI bots as the the stitches in the patchwork quilt to connect diverse communities in order to create more equality and better democracy. And so I, I do think that that's possible. It's just that I don't think that using AI and bots in an adversarial way is particularly advisable. <laughs> um, so yes, tools, te- particular technologies can be really helpful and AI is going to have to be used to respond to the problem that we currently face with content moderation on social media platforms and also, you know, dealing with disinformation, harassment, violence, um, because it's such a massive problem. Facebook uh, and companies like it scaled at such a high rate before they sort of got stopped in their tracks around these problems. Just after 2016, I would say, was really when the Mia Culpa movement happened. So now we're dealing with platforms that have billions of users rather than hundreds of thousands of users. And simply by design, we cannot respond to the, the sheer scale of the problems with just human labor. We have to figure out how to use AI. That being said, as we build these AI systems, we have to think very carefully about what we're putting in because what we put in matters on the back end. It matters a lot. And people like Safia Noble have written books like Algorithms of Oppression, which talk about the ways in which AI systems can be built and trained on particular data, trained by particular people in the tagging process in a way that they are discriminatory or they spread more disinformation or they have outcomes that the company or the person building them did not expect. And so companies have to work to measure for that. And and bringing in more researchers and more ethically minded folks is one way to do it. What role, if any, do you feel like uh, government or policy, you know, the government has in enforcing some of these ideas or these policies? I think early on in this work, I was really sensitive to the idea of regulation and over-regulation of the space because I saw it as being a potential problem for innovation in, in the technology space. So, uh, But over time, I've become more welcoming to regulation by governments as long as it's sensible regulation. What I'll say is that a lot of the regulation we've seen, whether it's in the United States at the state level or the very few laws we have at a national level, they've been pretty half-baked. And they haven't involved technologists or researchers in their development, or if they have, they haven't to the extent to which they understand that the technology will continue to advance. And so you constantly have to be updating the policy in tandem with the technology. And so if I'm in favor of regulation, I think regulation has to happen. I think that the social media companies know in the United States in particular that regulation has to happen. For instance, I read The Economist 
most weeks. And Facebook has been running full-page ads in The Economist nearly every week saying, we welcome regulation. On the one hand, it might be a marketing tactic. On the other hand, I think that they're just so sick of like having to deal with these problems on their own that they need the government to begin to help to, to regulate them. And the U.S. government has got to stop divesting itself from the regulation of the digital sphere just because they don't understand it. Because there's lots of people that do understand it here in the United States and can help them to build sensible regulation. It's just a question of getting organized and doing it. And so an analogy that, that I've heard a lot of people use is the analogy of big tobacco. You know, it's one thing to allow people to smoke and make a decision about whether or not they want to smoke. It's a whole other thing to allow tobacco companies to lie or to manipulate or to coerce people or to create new products that are sexy and look more healthy, like say, for instance, end products like uh, Juul or whatever that are purported to be less addictive. The way that policy helps in those circumstances is that policy is able to say like, look, no, you're not able to do this, this and this. Uh, you can still operate and people can still have a choice about what they want to do, but we're going to not allow you to harm people in these specific ways. And so, um, so again, just to reiterate, if we're going to, if we're going to regulate the space, and I think we are, we have to involve technologists, public interest technologists and researchers in this process so that the policy that gets created is actually sensible and is able to be mapped onto the internet and digital ecosystems rather than just trying to retrofit old policies that were created pre-internet. Or like Section 230, which is the one that always gets brought up about social media, which was written in the 1990s before Facebook and Twitter and all of those things existed. We can't keep trying to retrofit old laws for things that just do not fit into the, those legal frameworks. So until we can get, you know, a better way of combating this misinformation or these bots, like what can people do as an individual to, are there tools that they can implement now? Or is it, how do you recognize that there's a, a bot in play or that you're, someone's attempting to perhaps influence you? So I think on the whole, people have gotten more savvy to the fact that there are people out there trying to manipulate them online and that these different types of technologies and political strategies are part of social media. And so that awareness is good. I would say that on an individual level, there's lots of different tools that are out there. In fact, at our center, the Center for Media Engagement, the site is Engaging News. And on our website, you can find a lot of different tools for tracking whether or not a profile is a bot profile or whether or not a story has been fact-checked that might be disinformation. Mm -hmm. There's also organizations like the Pointer Institute, which generally is, is aimed at helping journalists to become better reporters, but that has also done a lot of work to put out information on fact-checking and disinformation in the digital sphere. You also have a First Draft, which is a really cool organization that I would highly recommend people have a look at their website. First Draft also has, has put itself on the front lines at battling back against this stuff. I think that the, you know, there's, there's simple, small things that people can do, which is like, you know, read the whole article before you share it on social media <laughs> and verify, vet the content before you, you post it. And also think before you're going to post something that's very political or inflammatory. Give yourself 15 minutes. I almost think that that's the best thing that we can do at this stage before the technology and policy catches up is just take a minute. Uh, because the technology is built in such a way that it elicits like a rapid response. And sometimes those rapid responses can be pretty problematic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that there's also a design issue in here. Like you said, the system is designed to not think, to, to urge you to react quickly. A coworker had mentioned that there's a project going on that 
it's trying to sort of reproduce almost letter writing, but in a technological way. So it's enforcing how quickly you can respond to something. So to your point, like after I look at an article, I have to wait. I can't respond to it or my my thing sits out there in draft mode for 10 minutes and then I'm prompted again. Do you really want to send this? Something along that line of sort of instituting a firewall between I read something or I read a headline and I take an action, right? That would be a great design principle to build into, you know, a, a place where you don't want disinformation to spread rapidly. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point. We we need more design solutions like that in our tech. And that's honestly like the main argument that I make in the reality game is there are ways in which we can design our technology to allow for people to think, to, to allow for people to spend more time. I say I call it designing with human rights and democracy <laughs> in mind, but like it's even more simple than that. It's just rather than designing for clicks or for time spent on the screen, you've got to design with you know particular political intentions in mind, right? Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, these sites were not built to share science and facts and politics. They were built for completely different reasons. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to redesign social media and other communication tools in the digital realm with the fact in mind that people will discuss politics, that, that people will be discussing elections, voting, people will be discussing science, climate change, these sorts of things. One other thing that I was thinking about was, so, so we're talking right now about sort of the systems and the interactions, but sometimes the content itself, um, and, and specifically here I'm talking about like deep fake videos or there's an audio version that I think is called Liarbird, um, where it's really incredible. I mean, at first glance, if you don't pay too close attention to it, it looks very real or sounds very real. How do you feel about how we would combat things like that? Yeah, so I have a, a chapter on deep fakes and a chapter on audio manipulation in the reality game, because I think these are two frontiers of the ways in which technology might be, be used for very realistic manipulation and disinformation. Uh, there was a lot of fervor and fear about deep fakes before the 2020 US election and, and before the, the uh, other contests that have recently happened in places like India. We haven't seen deep fakes be used in a, in a more sophisticated fashion to spread particularly damaging political disinformation yet. And that's because the technology oftentimes is more expensive or more difficult to use than some of the cheaper solutions like I talked about earlier. But I think that's going to change. This is a really big issue if you think to things like the legal process. So if you're in the courtroom and you can't trust a video or you can't trust an audio recording of someone committing a crime, that's a massive, massive problem. And so we've got to get out ahead of this. I know that there are companies out there that are already thinking about how to do this. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for sharing. Thanks for scaring the hell out of us. <laughs> um, you know, I'll never trust anything online anymore. I'm, I'm going back to uh, uh, the people that I meet in the street. <laughs> my, my feeling is the internet should come with a health warning, you know, just like, you know, cigarettes do that, you know, stay, you know, believing what you read on the internet too readily may be harmful to your health. <laughs> That's exactly right. Anything else you want to leave us with, Sam? The last thing I would say is, is that we need to be thinking about what's next for social media. And yes, we've seen a move to sites like Parler, Telegram, Signal. And the move to encryption and encrypted sites and private sites is worrying to me because I think what it, it means is that we will become more ignorant to the fact that there still is, is a, a lot of disinformation and extremism flowing. And, and that might allow us to pretend like it doesn't exist. 
but it still very much exists. And so pushing people to dark corners of the internet is not necessarily a good thing and it's not a solution. And so as this continues to happen, and I think it will, we need to be thinking very carefully, both as companies, as policymakers, as researchers, about the ways in which we can maintain encrypted spaces because they're really important for all sorts of human rights-oriented communication, while also preventing a lot of the horrible misuse of these platforms that we see that we know about, like terrorism, but also disinformation, child pornography, these sorts of things that are really problematic. I think we already have mechanisms for understanding how we can prevent the sharing of that kind of content through allowing people to tag it and share it with the company and say, hey, this is bad. But uh, but yeah, let's not just let companies move towards encryption. And, and as companies, let's not just move towards encryption and think that that's the solution. It's not. Great. Yeah, I think that's those are, those are some fantastic points. So thanks again, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Thank you all very much. Thanks again to Sam. The name of the book is The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. Go find it. I know we just scratched the surface of what Sam has to say. This is a complicated problem. Pulitzer Prize winning entomologist and biologist E.O. Wilson sums it up well. He says, the real problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Said another way, we react like cave people, we cling to outdated ways of functioning as a society, and we inflame it all with extraordinarily potent technology that seems to have a mind of its own. For anyone looking to change their relationship with social media, Sam outlined a lot of great advice in terms of what to do at the individual level. There's a lot of great thinking around this topic, so we wanted to include some other recommendations. The Center for Humane Technology is an organization founded by Tristan Harris. They recommend some simple things you can do right now. Turn off notifications. Remove apps you think are toxic. Seek out voices you don't agree with. Limit outrage from your diet. Support local journalism. And finally, remember to focus on the positive. Like we've explored in these last couple episodes, we're sometimes wired to be our own worst enemy. And that could include focusing on the negative. But we started this show to seek problems worth solving. And this most certainly qualifies. If you want some light reading in the meantime, I found this great 14th century book called The Most Fearful and Extraordinary Secrets of Cotton as toldeth to the author, verily, by a member of yon most secret cabal, who, forsooth, wisheth that thou dost not knoweth of these secrets. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Max Parcell. Chris Mitchell is our sound designer and engineer. Luke Parcell wrote and recorded our theme song and all the other music you hear throughout the show. And production support from Bell and Battisti. That is our show for this week. Thanks again to Sam Woolley and Josh Levin for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our first two-parter. Please join us for our next episode, which will be the last episode of our first season. I'm really excited about it. Our labs team has been working on solutions to the problems of social distancing that we covered way back in episode two. Our last episode will dive into how they approach the problems, the three different solutions they came up with, and how those solutions are working out. Let us know how we're doing. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and rate us in your favorite podcast dispenser. If you hated this episode, why are you still listening to me talk? If you haven't already removed the following apps from your phone, please reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. 
If you have forsworn all technology and have retreated to a state of nature in a local cave, you can always send us a note by mashing up some of those red berries down near the creek, being very careful not to drink any of the berry juice. Then use a stick or a, a porcupine quill, not currently attached to a live porcupine, to write us a note and set it adrift on the aforementioned creek. If the beavers don't eat it, we will get your message in the spring. See you next episode.